Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. What he sees as the most important and the most significant things when it comes to the Christian life. And it's one of those letters where he does not have the constraints of writing to a particular church because churches have issues, right? They tend to have issues. People have issues as well. Isn't it good to know that the church has always had issues? Does that make you feel good? Church has always had issues. We want to go back to the early church. Hold up. Have you read those seven churches in the book of Revelation? (laughs) I'm more happy to be here. Um, so he doesn't have the constraints of writing to, about issues, pastoral issues, theological issues. He doesn't have the, the concerns or the restraints of writing to someone like Philemon and saying, you know what, you need to actually take back your slave now. This is actually a general letter. This is a letter that is like, kind of like all of the restraints are let go and he can actually write about what he truly believes to be most important, most significant. So he writes a manifesto that we call Ephesians. And it's a lofty, elevated, visionary presentation of who God is. It's a vision of what God has done, what God is doing, what God will continue to do, and also our part to play in it. There is also this letter that invites us to participate in God's story. It's a story of God that's presented for all to see and all to marvel at. And just doing a little bit of a recap, bit of a run as we head towards uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we learned a couple of weeks ago that at the beginning of this letter, Paul actually gives this grand and glorious vision of what God has actually had in mind since the beginning of the, of the foundation of the world. And the grand and glorious vision is that of family. Everyone say family. Are you glad to be part of God's family? Do you realize you're part of God's family? Do you realize that that person that really annoys you is just your brother and sister in Christ and you have to put up with them for the rest of eternity? Isn't that really good news? Are you glad about that? Family. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? J.I. Packer, I'm just doing a bit of a recap. J.I. Packer said, The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Has God as Father. Do you have God as Father? You bet you do, and so do I. It's actually Jesus who actually gives us a glimpse of the character of our heavenly Father. It's Jesus. And all of the writers, they actually go back to Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the the writers of the New Testament, their reference point is Jesus. Our reference point still needs to be Jesus, right? But Jesus gives this glimpse of our heavenly Father. Probably the most profound and most pronounced would be the prodigal son, that parable as he speaks. And we read in in the story of of the prodigal son how the father is waiting for his Son, who's gone off and squandered his stuff, comes back. And and what's really interesting is that uh, the father doesn't seem to care why his son went. The father's just happy that his son's home. But then he has an older son as well. And in the parable, the older son represents you and me. And the older son's really annoyed, really ticked off. Have you ever met Christians who seem to be really, really annoyed? I meet them every day. Not in our churches, outside in other churches. But like you meet them every day. And the father comes and says, why are you so annoyed? Why, 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 why do you, are you like this? And he actually releases from his mouth those words that should really, really shake us to the core. The father says to his older son, who is you and me in the parable, everything I have is yours. Those words should mess us up because Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the character of our heavenly father. 
So this heavenly father who says to his son, everything I have is yours, is the same heavenly father that Paul speaks of in the book of Ephesians when he says, all praise to the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. The same heavenly father who takes delight in, in, in smiling upon his children, he then gives us an inheritance. Isn't it good to know you have an inheritance? And we have a great inheritance. We have an inheritance that is the new creation, that God is going to line everything up. Everything is going to be flourishing. Everything is going to be made new. We have this inheritance and this understanding that we've somehow stumbled into this great, glorious, grand inheritance that we couldn't possibly imagine. And if any of us ever doubted that this inheritance was ever going to come, if any of us ever doubted, like the older son, the character of the father who actually says, everything I have is yours, well, God's actually thought about that. And he says, this this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and you're going to get a taste of what is to come right here, right now. Isn't that good to know that I can actually walk and experience and live in some of that fullness right here, right now? Does anyone want to walk in some of that stuff? Are you excited about that kind of stuff? In a broken and decaying world that we get to live in some of that fullness right here, right now. And the idea is that not only would we taste this, but we would demonstrate this as well to the world around us. And you have to ask the question, well, why? Why? Why should I demonstrate this? And the answer again comes back to the vision that God has in the vision that Paul is painting. It's the vision of family. Because God's family is extending. It is far-reaching. God wants lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of sons and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of daughters. And the picture and the idea is that God has actually written up the adoption papers. He signed his end and he is waiting for anyone to actually give their consent to join his family as well. God wants a big family. So as we're living right here, right now in 2020, we get to have a taste of what is to come, but we also get to show the world what is to come as well. That is the way we should be living our Christian life. It's a story of God's love. It's a story of God's kindness. It's a story of God's delight. And it is a story of what God is famous for. This is what God is famous for. Ask anyone on the street in Perth in a CBD right now, ask them this question. What do you think God is famous for? What do you think they'd say? Well, this is what God is actually supposed to be famous for. And the only way the world is going to know what God is famous for is if we live it out. That section that we started two weeks ago ends with this phrase that we are to live for the praise of His glory. In other words, that we should be living so that His reputation and, that he is and, and the world knows what He is famous for. It's a bold, big vision, isn't it? It's a grand vision. Like that idea that we can have a taste of some of that fullness now, does that seem like a little bit too extreme? Does that seem like a little bit too extraordinary? Does that seem like a little bit too big? Well, I reckon it does. And guess what? Paul agrees. Paul absolutely agrees. So this is what Paul does. He says, this is so big, so extraordinary. So this is what I'm going to tell you right now. This is what I'm going to do about that. I'm going to pray for you. Uh-huh. I'm going to pray for you because there are some things that we simply cannot see unless we pray. Isn't that good? And that's what we were looking at last week. Ephesians 1 verse 15 to 16, Ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you and praying for you constantly. Why is he praying? So they can actually get a handle on this grand vision that he's been articulating because it's too big to actually imagine. That's why he's doing it. 
And understand that Paul is not indifferent to any or, or, or uncompassionate to any Christian or any church anywhere because he knows that they, that we are his brothers and sisters in the most real sense, by blood, the blood of Christ. So he does what we all should do in response to having such a big family. He thanks God for his family. He continually prays for his family because he genuinely loves his family. And you know what? There's one assessment that you can make and I can make that actually lets us know who we truly love. Who are you praying for? Ouch, that hurt, didn't it? <laughs> oh, great. But Paul prays for the ones he loves. He prays for his family because he understands that there are some things that they are not going to be able to see unless someone prays. And in our lives and in our church, there are some things that you and I are not going to be able to see, the riches of Christ, the richness of what we have, the inheritance of God. There are some things that we simply cannot see unless someone prays for us. So Paul prays for two things. And this is what we, we would have gone through last week. Two significant things. That God's people would know God better. And that knowing is not an intellectual knowing, it's an experiential knowing. It's a personal knowing. There's a lot of people who know of Andrea Ryder. Guess what? I know her. There's a lot of people who know of Jesus of Nazareth. Guess what? I know him. There's a difference. So he's praying that, number one, God's people would know God better. Do you know God better like now compared to this time last year? Amen. I sure hope you do. We're praying for that. We're praying for that. And the second thing that Paul prays is that God's people would know the blessings of God better. Not only would we know God better, but we would know the blessings better. And that word knowing is not just a head thing again, it's that we would experience it. And he breaks it down into three blessings. I'm giving you this recap. Three blessings that, 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 God wants, that Paul wants God's people to know. The first one is hope, that we would know our hope. You know why? Because what we, what we truly see about the end shapes the way we behave in the middle. Have you ever seen like people who are following Jesus Christ, they're just like messed up in the middle? You know what? If we could actually fix the way we see the end, that determines the way we behave in the middle. Hope is an incredible thing. The second thing is that God's in glorious inheritance. It's interesting in chapter, at the beginning, God talks about our inheritance, but what about God's inheritance? Well, God's inheritance is that he will fully adopt all of us, right? That's God's glorious inheritance, which begs the question, how am I treating the people who God is going to fully inherit? Wow, they're my brothers and sisters, right? He's like saying, I want you to know that the ones you're sitting next to right now, the one that's ticking you off right now, that's God's glorious inheritance. How's that going to shape the way you're going to live? And the third one is his power. His power. And understand, like, hope and God's inheritance, that's all about future. But God's power is about what we're going to experience right here, right now. God's power. Evidently, all of us can actually experience God's resurrection power. Would you like to experience that? Would you like to like, be, like, have some of that in your life? Well, it's a great power. The problem is, it's a different kind of power. Because we still see power in the same way, you know what? We're going to like, flex our muscles. We're going to send in the tanks. And we think that's about being powerful. We're going to climb the ladder. We're going to like, be the one on, uh, on the top. And we think that's the power. But, but God's actually talking about, no, there's actually a different kind of power. 
Verse 19 says, I pray that you would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the kind of power it is. It's a power that is a sacrificial power. It's a power that gives. It's a power that promotes others. It is a power that has literally transformed the world. From a handful of believers, 500, who saw the resurrected Jesus, just a couple of hundred years after that, you have up to 60% of the Roman Empire converted to being Christians because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good, isn't it? So that's kind of a recap. Does that kind of make sense? It's good to know how, like, getting a lead into this. So our next section of this letter lands on one of the most important verses in Ephesians and consequently one of the most important verses for any Christian to understand and not just understand, to live out. Because I think that we need to really grapple with that question, what does it mean to be made alive? We sing about it, we preach about it, we read our Bibles, and, and that language is just thread throughout the Scriptures. What does it mean to actually be made alive? And why is it? Why is it? Like something that sort of bamboozled me so often. How is it and why is it that there seems to be, like, like even those who profess to be Christians, they're walking around and they seem to be like half dead. Have you ever met someone like that? They walk around moping and groaning and like they're just beige and like you see just walking around and you know what they're kind of going, you know what, I gave my life to Jesus. Come to Jesus. You can be just like me. Why is that? That should not be. Why is that? Why do we have Christians who are hollow, who are beige, who are lifeless, who walk around professing to worship a life-giving, victorious, risen Jesus, but their life doesn't add up? Well, we really do need to grapple with that. We need to understand what it means to actually become new and live in this new life. So the verse that we're going to land on, we're just going to mention it now before we, we read on. It's Ephesians chapter 2, um, verse 10. And it says this, for we are God's masterpiece. That's good, isn't it? We're God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things He planned for us long ago. We're going to see very soon that everything we receive from God is a gift. We've received everything. And this verse also lets us know that because of what God has done, because of everything that God has given to us, there is actually an appropriate response. And the only appropriate response is to live with and for God in a brand new way. So there should be something brand spanking new about the way I'm living because I've received all these great gifts from God. So we're going to read from verse 1 to 10. And again, I haven't got it up there. I really encourage you just to hear. Um, these letters were written to be heard. So um, how about you listen as I read the first 10 verses? Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. The command of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live in that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him 
in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So that God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Ten compact verses outlining (laughs) the brutal honesty. It is brutal. We're about to see that. The brutal honesty as to where we've come from and what God has done for those who call Jesus King. It's this, this place that we were once walking dead and now we are walking in good works in God's new creation. We have literally gone from death to life. And, and Paul wants to try to get to us. He wants to really hammer home that we've actually come from a place. He wants us to understand, to recognize, to remember that we were once in a situation, once in a place. So this is what he says from verse 1. He says, once you were dead. That's encouraging, isn't it? Welcome to church. You were once dead. Have you ever seen a dead thing? Salvation is a messy business. It's a messy business. But we don't like mess. And because we don't like mess, we forget about how messy things were actually in our lives. So Paul is reminding us that we were once in this place and he is offensively brutal and honest about it. But as I read that, you were once dead, that doesn't really shake us to our core, really, does it? It's like, oh, yeah, Dave's saying we were once dead. Yeah, case of rust, case of, you know. Our imagination doesn't allow us to really comprehend what Paul is saying. But I do have a depiction of something that works pretty well. And um, I was thinking, you know what, I'm pretty sure people in our church are going to get offended with me showing this. But I'm going to do it anyway, because that's precisely what Paul wants to do. He wants to show us the brutal reality of where we once were. When he says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So here's the closest depiction that I can find um, of where we once were and what Paul is actually talking about. So how about you look to the screen and the guys will press play and you'll actually see a portrait, a picture of what Paul is trying to tell us um, about where we once were. The moonlight shows us for what we really are. We are not among the living, and so we cannot die. But neither are we dead. For too long I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. I feel nothing. Not the wind on my face, nor the spray of the sea. Nor the warmth of a woman's flesh. You best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. (laughs) What are you looking at? Back to work. All right. Does that paint a bit more of a picture? If anyone's offended right now, sorry. Um, One thing we need to actually understand is that the creative arts actually tell us how people are thinking, what people are actually uh, experiencing. 
And we need to engage with the creative arts. And if the creative arts is actually saying, I think the beautiful thing about this is that we don't need to use our imagination when Paul talks about you're living but you're dead. Because Hollywood is so fascinated with this. There are movies, there are TV shows. And you know why? Because there's a resonance. You know why there's a resonance? Because people truly feel like that. What does he say? Like, for too long I've been parched with thirst, unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. I feel nothing, not the wind on my face, nor the spray of the sea, nor the warmth of a woman's flesh. That is where we were. That is where we were. That is where the world is. Right? And the way that we see the world in light of where we once were, that should cause this immense compassion to rise up from within us. He is painting this picture that is similar to like that of the living dead. We could actually use like other films and other stuff, which will probably get even a little bit more in your face. But, but commentators and scholars actually say, you know, if Paul was here right now, and if he was to use contemporary language, he'd use language similar to like, the, we were like zombies. We were like the walking dead. We were like the living dead. That's what we were we were kind of human but not fully human we were kind of alive but not fully alive Paul does not hold back when he says once you were dead once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins you used to live in sin like the rest of the world obeying the devil the commander of the powers of the unseen world he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God now 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 just in a moment just take that picture that was on the screen and now contrast that with the vision of chapter one you got skeletons on a ship you got like a captain who's trying to drink wine and it goes straight through him it's not going to quench him he can't even taste it there is no pleasure there is no delight from this world contrast that to what paul says about chapter one about you and i where we stand right now we are adopted into our heavenly father's family we have a father who says everything i have is yours we have a father who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing who takes pleasure and delight in giving us an incredible inheritance that we can taste right here right now And as we will shortly see, there is even more. That's the contrast. That's where we are right now. But it was not that long ago. We were there. And it doesn't matter how old you are right here, right now. It was not that long ago. But Christians have very short memories. Very, very short memories, don't we? Salvation's a messy business. And we can't forget that. And it's at this point that Paul starts to unpack some things that he's going to actually bring to more fullness later on. And he starts to unpack what true spiritual warfare is. Have you ever met some spooky pooky Christians? Have we got any spooky pookies here? Mitchell, did you used to be a spooky pooky? (laughs) But he's actually unpacking what our true spiritual warfare is. And it's important for us to know, he says this, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Paul will later tell us that our warfare is not against flesh and blood. Especially in the family of God, we need to understand and recognize that if you've got an attitude or something against someone, let's deal with that straight away. The greatest spiritual warfare you could ever do is to get your act together and forgive that person and ask for forgiveness. Amen? Because to recognize that behind that person, you're not going against that person. Behind that person, there are principalities and there are powers that are trying to bring division and we need to be smarter. Isn't that right? 
In fact, he's going to let us know that it is actually the devil and those spiritual hosts in the heavenlies that are blinding people right now. So when we come against people and we see things, we can easily say, oh man, that person, that person. But if we have the discernment to look behind that and engage in what's behind that person, then we're going to be effective. And then we won't be these spooky, pooky Christians who just, I don't know, they just get up my goat. Anyway, because you understand what's at play here. There's actually spiritual powers in play. And another thing we need to understand and recognize as modern Christians, we are engaging in spiritual things. We are engaging in spiritual things. Sometimes we don't like to recognize that. But don't for a minute think those, power, those powers are too powerful. Don't, don't think about that. Because we know they're not too powerful. We know that right now. Because verse 3 says, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else. Those powers are not powerful enough to keep us from receiving newness of life. So it would make sense that those powers are not powerful enough to keep others from receiving newness of life. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, you know, the devil's so big and so strong. Actually, those spiritual powers, they've been disarmed. That was a big part of Paul going around to these pagan places and actually letting them know, you know, those, you're, you're scared of those gods because they were scared. They, they were thinking if I start worshipping like Jesus, these other gods, they're going to like really be upset with me and they're going to come and get me. And Paul's saying, don't you understand? Because of the victory of Christ, all those other powers... They've been disarmed. Don't worry about it. We as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand and recognize we come against spiritual stuff, but we also recognize that all of their stuff, they're disarmed. So we get into it. Anyway. So verses 1 to 3 depict this dire situation. How in the world are you going to be able to do anything if you are literally dead? The vision that Paul is having, having as he's writing this is the, is the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel. Remember that? This valley of dry bones. How do dry bones get life? How do they do anything for themselves? And this is really the point. Dead things cannot do anything for themselves. Dry bones cannot do anything but just be dead and dry. We who were dead, we could not do a single thing for ourselves. We couldn't. We were completely dead. The situation was hopeless. There was, it was desperate. There was agony. And it's so alarming to know we had no ability in and of ourselves to do anything. We were like the living dead. We were a bunch of filthy skeletons walking around a ship, longing for a way to become truly human. But God, verse 4, but God. Two words that change absolutely everything. Two words that still change everything and two words that will continue to change everything but God. Aren't you so glad that there is a but God? We were dead by God. We were in bondage by God. We were hopeless by God. Who is this God? This God is our Heavenly Father. He is the one who's already said to us, the same Heavenly Father who said, everything I have is yours. He's the same Heavenly Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And we should by now be familiar with the character of this God, this Heavenly Father, because verse 4 says, but this God, but God who is rich in mercy, same God. And He has loved us so much. I love the fact that He didn't say He loved us. He loved us so much. 
so much. When I talk to my kids, I don't just tell them, you know, I love you. I say, I love you so much. I want them to get an idea of how much I love them. So I say to Kayla, do you know how much daddy loves you? I said, if you were to count all of the grains on all of the beaches of all, all over this globe, that still not would be enough. I love you more than that. I say to Jackson, have you ever looked out and seen all the stars out there? There are literally billions and trillions of stars. I love you more than that. Our Heavenly Father, but God, our Heavenly Father loved us so much, so much, so much that he intervenes. He says, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. If God didn't intervene, we'd still be in this helpless place. We'd still be in this hopeless place, but... We are not. And why did God reach out to save us? Because he didn't have to. Why did he reach out to save us when we were dead and lost? It is because of this great love. And if you remember, this is what he's famous for. This is what he's famous for. Just listen to what he says to Moses as he reveals his character to Moses. Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive inequity, rebellion, and sin. 1 John 4, verse 9 to 10 says this, God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This is God's reputation. This is what God is famous for. In fact, this is what God will be famous for for the ages and the ages and the ages and the ages and the ages that are yet to come. Read this from verse 6. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Pay attention to verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God is always going to be famous and his reputation is going to be this. For the ages and the ages and the ages to come. Does that just make you just want to worship him and just give him praise and give him glory? You are so good to me. You are so wonderful. But a fast track. Let's go back to verse 4. God is rich in mercy and loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Even though we were dead, he gave us life. Gave us life. A couple of years ago, Andrea's dad, who's pretty good at um, building things, he um, surprised my son Jackson with a go-kart. And it was an exceptional go-kart, by the way. He built it from scratch. Built it from scratch. You should have seen the look on Jackson's face. Could not believe it. You should have seen the look on my face. Couldn't believe it. Unbelievable. There's no way I could ever do something like that. But you've got this go-kart. We've got car park at church, which is brilliant. So he could just go for it. And, um, but, but, but he built this, and he just did it with such, like, the, the workmanship was incredible. It was incredible. And we're all saying to Jackson, Jackson, isn't it amazing you've got a go-kart? Isn't that great? But the reality is the attention should not have been on Jackson because Jackson was just the receiver of such an extraordinary gift. The gift said nothing of the receiver. It said everything of the giver. 
the detail, the time, the workmanship. It says everything about my father-in-law. It didn't really say anything about Jackson, especially for the fact that he didn't want his sister to jump in it because he was just being a little boy. When it comes to gifts, you may think this is arrogant, but this is one thing which I know. The Lord has given me extraordinary gifts. He's also given you extraordinary gifts. I pray that you're being blessed by the gifts that the Lord has given me. But please do not put any attention on me. Please do not make the mistake of saying, oh, Dave, uh-uh. The gifts that we see and we experience say everything of the giver and nothing of the receiver. The only thing they would ever say of the receiver is my generosity and willingness to share it with all. But the gift says everything of the giver and not of the receiver. Is that not right? That's so true, isn't it? One thing which I want to instill in the leadership teams of both churches is that the Lord gives us gifts, but these gifts are not just to serve in Kalamunda or just to serve in New Spring. No, the gifts are to serve in the church. So by rights, Tim and Beck and like Nick, how cool is it just having the FIPS up here? You know, we, could, we, we should be able to just, ch- just plant them in any church like next Sunday and it doesn't even matter because they're still using their gifts to serve the church. That's the approach we need to have. But the gifts that God gives us tells us all about Him and very, very little about us. And there is no more exceptional gift than the gift of life itself. And that tells us something about God, the giver. It doesn't say too much about us. I hate to tell you this. There is no such thing as good, any good little Christians. If you think you're a good little Christian, let me remind you that a couple of years ago, you were dead. That's what Paul's saying. There are no good little Christians, but what they are, there are redeemed sons and daughters of a loving, generous, heavenly Father. Let's put the focus back on him. The life that we have right now is because of him. Far too many Christians thinking that we're all that. You ain't all that. I'm not all that. I know I'm not all that because I face my weaknesses and my vulnerabilities every single day. And you do as well, don't you? And to be honest, with our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities should make us look at our gracious Heavenly Father and say, you've got to be out of your mind. You looked at me in the state I am and you still love me and you still gave me life? It says everything about Him. Everything about Him. So we should seriously be shouting and dancing and like celebrating because this is absolutely extraordinary. To actually become alive, truly alive, But what's incredible about God, I mean, this would be good in and of itself, but there's actually more. There's still more. He still keeps on giving more. Verse 6, For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. We're seated with Christ. We've already learned where Jesus is seated. He's at the right hand of the Father. He has all power, all authority. He is currently executing all power, all authority, albeit a different power because we now look at power through the lens of the cross. And we are invited to actually participate and have access to that same power. This is incredible. 
And this is what real love is. It just keeps on giving and giving and giving. The Father's saying, everything I have is yours. Every spiritual blessing is yours. You could even sit where Jesus is sitting. Oh, my goodness. And you have access to the same power that is currently transforming hearts and transforming nations, transforming communities. You can have access to that same power right now. The only catch is you need to understand it's a different kind of power. This is extraordinary stuff. This is extraordinary stuff. So once again, Paul is letting us know that we have access to the same resurrection power. And you and I, we're going to need this same resurrection power if we are to receive this great gift of life, which the Lord gives us, and to actually respond appropriately because we need to live as if and in the reality that we have been made brand new. We have become New. So in Ephesians 2 verse 10 is where we're going to land and the worship team can come up. I'm almost done. It says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us a new in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You see, once we were dead. We were dead men and dead women walking. But now we are made brand new. We are his masterpiece. We are his poem. We are his symphony, which he has created with all beauty and wonder. Compare that to those skeletons on the ship, because that's where we once were. I think it's crazy because we sing songs about that reality, don't we? I remember even here, like January and February, like we were thinking, you know, you called my name and I ran out of the grave. You remember that? What do you think you were wearing? Like a nice suit and you had like your deodorant on and like you looked nice and all that, like when you're running out of a grave? No, you, you stink. You're smelly. Your clothes are torn. That's where we were. But he did call our name. And now we live in this new life. In other words, we've got some work to do now. In other words, to use some language that we've been using this year, it's time for the kings and queens to march again. But we march differently now, you see, because we're thankful people because we've seen where we were. We've been reminded about where we were. We're rejoicing people now because like, ah, oh, Paul, I forgot. I've got, I'm a Christian. I've got a short memory. I forgot. Thank you so much. It was only a couple of years ago. That's right. I was dead. I was filthy. I was half human. I was half alive. I was thirsty and I couldn't quench that thirst. But you made me new. We march differently because we're going to be so generous. Because we understand and we recognize that every gift that I have and the gift of life and everything else which the Lord gives me, that says nothing of me. Dave Ryder is not a good little Christian. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm not. I am a redeemed son of the Most High God. And I rest on that. The day I start resting on my goodness, I've forgotten about this gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The more I'm aware of that, I am, oh God, I'm a work in progress. 
And where you found me, I thank God that you didn't leave me there. And because everything I have is given to me by you, I'm going to be so generous. I'm going to be so lavish. I'm going to pour it out wherever I can. God, if you've given me something that's going to bless people, I'm going to use that gift everywhere. Everywhere. Even if other people say, Dave, why are you doing that? Dave, why are you doing that? Dave, why are you doing that? Say, I don't care what you think. I understand, I recognize that every single gift has been given to me by my Heavenly Father. And He's so good, He's so kind. And because of that, I'm going to spread it around. I'm not going to even apologize for it. I'm going to spread it around. And Paul gives us a stark reminder of where we were just a few short years ago. Even if you're over 100 years right now in the light of eternity, it's only a couple of years ago. That's where you were. But we have very, very short memories as Christians. And to be made alive in Christ now means that we are God's masterpiece. That we have been made anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Have you stopped doing those good things? Because if you have stopped doing those good things, you are not living in the newness of life. See, this is how this works. Verse 1, we were dead. We were the walking dead. Verse 10, we are now walking in these good works because now we are alive. So if we are alive, we are walking in good works. So if you've stopped walking in those good works, start walking. Start strutting. Start showing off God's fame. Start being generous everywhere you are. Understanding and recognizing that every good and perfect gift from, 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 from in my life comes from my Father above. And I will pour it out lavishly. I will pour it out extravagantly. And the more I pour it out, the more He gives. And the more I pour it out, the more He gives. And the more I pour it out, the more He gives. And He gets all glory and all praise because I'm living for the praise of His glory so that He would be famous and His reputation would be known. See how this works?